Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info. It's Friday, May 14th, and we come to the end of another week here on Political Rewind. We're so glad to have you uh, join us for this show today. Um, For two days in a row, yesterday and today, we're focusing on great Georgia leaders through a new lens. If you were with us yesterday, you heard a conversation about the life and legacy of the great civil rights um, uh, leader, C.T. Vivian. And today we're going to focus on Jimmy Carter. Um, As I said at the very introduction to the show, there's a cliche that has been repeated over and over again that Jimmy Carter was a failed president, but has had a successful post-presidency, probably the most successful post-presidency of any president of the United States. But in fact, um, reassessments of his life are showing us that he accomplished many, many things and was truly a visionary in office. And that's certainly the theme of the new documentary, Carterland, um, which was made by uh, two Georgia natives, brothers Will and Jim Pattis, who we're going to talk to in just a minute. It's Friday on the show, so I'm joined by my uh, colleague at the AJC, Patricia Murphy, political reporter and columnist. She does the Political Insider column, which you read on Wednesdays and Sundays in the newspaper, and she oversees the uh, uh, political, the jolt, and uh, other items that appear on the AJC website throughout the day. Hey, Patricia, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you. Yeah, good to have you here. Um, Will and Jim, uh, your contention, and, and Will, I'll start with you on this. Your contention is that Carter was a a largely misunderstood president. And I'll tell you, well, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to ask Patricia first, because Patricia grew up here in Georgia. She's an Atlanta native. So I'm going to start with you, Patricia. When you were in school, what did your history classes tell you about Georgia native Jimmy Carter and his presidency, if anything at all? Uh, Well, certainly we knew and were taught that he was from Georgia. Um, I distinctly remember a math segment about inflation. (laughs) And he was (laughs) he was the (laughs) he was the president we talked about when it came to our math segment for inflation. Um, We knew that there were hostages um, in Iran and we knew that he lost, you know, it, and it really signifies to me, I think probably what a lot of the media coverage was for him back then. And so much of history is driven by those short term, high intensity, um, media hits. Um, of course I should have said the Middle East peace process as well was a really big thing. Um, but you know, so much of that is driven by those short term responses to, um, his, his actions in the moment. And when you have a chance to reflect with distance and with, um, a documentary like Carterland, it gives us so much more perspective on the real effects of his choices. And that I just loved this documentary for that reason. I think it is clear eyed, but also gives us so much more perspective than any of us living in Georgia, um, in the, during his administration or in, in the immediate uh, years following really, um, could have had at the time. Yeah, um, now, Will uh, and Jim, uh, you guys didn't learn much, you said, about Jimmy Carter in school. I'm, I'm right, Will, that you grew up in Peachtree City, correct? Right, that's correct. And, and, and was Carter a subject in any classes at all? Yeah, I mean, uh, sadly, thanks for having us today, Bill. Yeah, sadly, the, sure. um, have, you know, when we were in school, it was really interesting because we learned something similar to what Patricia said where, yeah, he's, we did a president's unit. I remember, I think it was in the third or fourth grade. And we learned that he was our president and that he also lost. And that there's kind of this narrative of a loser almost, like that this dark cloud over him because of that. He wasn't reelected. And what Jim and I found is that, man, that is, I mean, when you're ahead of your time, that's kind of something that you risk. You can either be remembered in your time or probably later, and it's a really sad paradox that happened there. So, Jim, 
what was it then that that inspired you to make this documentary and and gather interviews with so many extraordinary people who told a story, in fact, about the visionary Jimmy Carter and the positive part of his presidency. When did you decide that needed to be done? Um, you know, that's a good question. Uh, we, when Will and I, you know, we have a background in public lands filmmaking, and we had initially kind of stumbled on Carter's um, conservation legacy, which is this incredible legacy he leaves behind in his, in his one term in office, um, protecting, you know, Alaska and, and all these other, you know, wild and scenic rivers. And we thought, hey, this would make a great story for a feature film. But as we dug into it, we realized there's so much more here. And it turns out, you know, Jimmy Carter isn't the hapless peanut farmer president that um, he's been cast as in, in popular media. And we felt like, you know, people needed to know that. Georgians needed to know that. But also, um, People nationwide needed to understand that this guy was way ahead of his time. And I think to Will's point, you know, that, yes, that's one of the reasons why, um, you know, you run that risk when you're when you're a visionary. But I think another thing with Carter, which we learned and we really tried to drive home in this film, is this was somebody who was willing to take real political risks during his presidency. And he paid the price for that um, by not getting reelected and then also by having other people kind of write his legacy. Um, so I think that was we really wanted to set out and tell that story. So I think it's interesting that you describe the uh, uh, the way in which he was portrayed back in those days by many media as kind of a hapless character. Uh, very early on in your picture, you uh, share with us a CBS News report when Carter was running, first running for president, it sounds to me like the voice of Eric Severide. Am I right about that? Do you guys know who the correspondent was who did that piece that you uh, uh, share with us? It, it doesn't matter. Maybe somebody in the listening audience will know. But listen to what the correspondent says in describing Jimmy Carter's Plains, Georgia. Everybody knows by now that Plains, Georgia is a strange place to grow a presidential candidate. But it doesn't really hit you until you see it. Here is a place which is really, in the old American phrase, eight miles west of nowhere. And here is a man with, a few years ago at least, no powerful friends, no extensive record of public service, with no inherited background of wealth or culture or intellectualism. Here is a man who decided a little over three years ago he could run for president. And now has, according to the polls, a good chance of moving into the most powerful office in the world. How do you judge him? So, Patricia, if that isn't a series of backhand compliments, I don't know what is. There is a condescension in that description, which is pretty overwhelming. Well, even just, you know, no record of public service. I mean, he was the governor of Georgia, for heaven's sakes, and no history of intellectualism. Uh, he was a nuclear engineer at Annapolis. So uh, yeah. it was not only condescension, it really was uh, quite inaccurate. Yeah, and yet, Jim, that sort of set the tone um, it, for how he was covered, um, if not throughout every phase of his presidency, through much of his presidency, that this was a guy who just wasn't up for the job, right? Yeah, I think that was a real, a real theme throughout his presidency, and that was kind of why we wanted to set the film up with that that line to help you understand, you know, what Carter was up against, not only, you know, on the heels of Watergate in Vietnam, but what he was up against in the popular media. And I think it was sort of a twofold thing. It was, yeah, you know, they were portraying him as this hapless, um, you know, peanut farmer, sort of a guy with, with no real background, not like, you know, the Kennedys or Ted Kennedy, who was very popular at the time. Um, but I think there was also the, the media was eager to, on the heels of Watergate, they were very eager to show that, well, we're being fair, you know, we're not just going to go after, you know, Richard Nixon and, and, and the Republicans were also going to go after the Democrats. And I think they blew things up in the Carter administration that were, were very small and they ended up really taking them to, to great extremes. The other thing was Saturday Night Live, you know, is lampooning Carter for being really smart, you know, the, the call-in show with Walter Cronkite and everything. And they're talking yeah. about, 
you know, how he knows how he knows uh, different, you know, tax forms and, and think obscure, you know, government minutia. So, yeah, this was a real theme in his presidency. Well, I watched the Carter presidency unfold from my hometown, Chicago. But I've got to say, if I'd been in Georgia back then um, and I'd watched that f- initial coverage, I would have been really insulted. <laughs> yeah, it was amazing. We interviewed um, one of the interviews that we did that did, doesn't end up making the film, but it was with the Georgia Tech professor. His name was Richard Bark. And he basically outlined him going to, being from Georgia but going to school in the Northeast. And President Carter, then Governor Carter, shows up um, to do a speech. And so he invites a bunch of his buddies over to watch the, you know, his governor give this speech. And they all thought it was, you know, going to be some sort of a joke. And then about, you know, a minute to three minutes into his speech, everybody in the, in audi- in the whole audience was just wrapped with what he was saying. They were so taken aback by how his intelligence. And so that was kind of his case everywhere he went is that he has this folksy voice, this Southern voice that people don't associate with intelligence, even though there are, in fact, a lot of smart people in the South. But he was kind of a victim of that. But it also led to his meteoric rise and then also kind of a lot of the problems that he faced as president. So, Patricia, um, we know that Carter was a surprise to the country. Uh, no one anticipated he was going to run for president. It's a famous story that his uh, uh, closest advisor and the man who became chief of staff in the White House, the Hamilton Jordan, came to him with an elaborate, lo- a very long memo laying out in great detail how Jimmy Carter could be elected president of the United States. They followed that blueprint, and it led to this extraordinary uh, uh, victory. Um, Let me, if I can, Patricia, I want to talk about that in the context of um, the the Nixon days. Randall Baumer, a professor of history at Dartmouth College, wrote a really fascinating biography of Jimmy Carter called Redeemer. It was the story of his life through his evangelical uh, beliefs. And here's something that Baumer says about why Carter won. He says, Carter represented a clean break with the recent past, an opportunity to redeem the nation. The man whose improbable election in 1976 redeemed the nation from the sins of Watergate. Americans fixate on their leader's moral character, so it's no wonder they warmed to Carter in 1976. In the wake of Watergate, they were eager for a strift draft draft of probity. Casting a ballot for Carter, the Redeemer president, would expunge the voters' sins and absolve them of complicity in electing Richard Nixon. Fascinating uh, way to look at that, Patricia. Well, I think we can look at so many past presidential elections as uh, both complicated and yet an exact referendum on the president that has come before them. And so if you had to think of anybody who was the polar opposite of Richard Nixon, it would be Jimmy Carter. And the polar opposite of um, this administration plagued by uh, by graft and corruption and dirty tricks and underhanded deals, um, it would be uh, Jimmy Carter's morality. And what was so fascinating, of course, now we think of that evangelicalism really infusing the Republican Party. But when you go back and listen to Jimmy Carter's um, time in the White House, and especially in this documentary, it struck me, he spoke so much about morality um, in all of his policies, everything from public lands and conservation um, to his fight for Middle East peace and um, even just his honesty with voters and I saw it in a way it really hurt him in some ways because he didn't sugarcoat it and he didn't lie to voters when he was telling voters, um, when he was making his pitch for conservation and for energy um, conservation, instead of sort of cloaking it and, um, uh, you know, large sweeping futuristic terms, he would say, you know, he said, this is going to require thrift and sacrifice. (laughs) And it just didn't go over very well, but he was being so honest. And I think he believed if he was honest with voters, they could handle that. And in some ways, they couldn't. Yeah. Um, Will, pick up on that for us. 
Yeah, I mean, that's one of the themes of the entire film is this idea of Jonathan Alter, who just came out with a wonderful um, president, biography on President Carter, kind of lays it out, and he says, um, President Carter was the last president who really asked for sacrifice because that's the political loser. And it's a real shame, and that's kind of one of the things that we're trying to do with this film is show that, because now people say, oh, he's one term, that means automatically he wasn't successful. What we're trying to do with starting in Georgia, because Georgia has become such a hotbed state for politics, but also nationally, is show that he was way ahead of his time. He was actually doing the right thing. We didn't reward him for it then, but we should have. And this is this film is a cautionary tale to folks saying, hey, look at the mistakes we've all we all made as a country in the past. Let's fix them moving forward. But that's a problem that he ran into because you know, at the beginning of his presidency, he's bright, uh, you know, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, very optimistic about what he can change. And you see, like, by the end, we have this great piece of his crisis of confidence speech. And it, by that point, he, it's almost the dynamic has changed to, I mean, Jim and I see the speech as very brave and a courageous speech, but his conversational tone is almost admonishing to folks. It's almost saying, why, you know, like, I put out all these great policies. I've been the leader that you asked for. Why aren't you guys coming with me on this adventure? And so you, it's a very interesting shift that happens. Yeah, I think, Jim, that's a really uh, fascinating point. Um, at the end, I think, of his first year, his approval ratings were skyrocketing. They were way up, I think, over 60%. And yet by year four, uh, his he had the worst approval ratings of any president before him. He was... He, the disapproval rating of over 70%. So the downward spiral was really remarkable to watch. And in some ways, Jim, the morals that he, he believed so strongly in, the moral values that he promoted, um, and his sense of decency and honesty were what did him in. Yeah, you're absolutely right about that. I mean, uh, and that's what we learned in making this film, and that's kind of the story we're telling with this. But, you know, we interviewed uh, Douglas Brinkley, who who wrote a great book on President Carter, The Unfinished Presidency, um, a great author in his own right. And he, he talked about one of the problems with Carter is that he really has no greed. And in American politics, you do need a certain amount of greed um, in order to be successful. And that really goes back to this paradox of politics that we have um, where you can only go so far with an entirely pure message, as, as John Alter says in our film. And so Carter isn't able to do that. He, he, his, really, his convictions, he sticks by them. And you see him time and again throughout his presidency choose to do what he believes is the right thing to do despite the political cost. And, and one of the things that, that we really examine with this film, it's been a, a criticism of Carter's for a long time, is that, oh, well, he did these things because he didn't understand politics. No, he did understand politics. And, and uh, Dr. Robert Strong tells us, you know, in this um, film, we interviewed him, he says Carter knew full well, Hamilton, Jordan, these guys were giving him good advice. And they told him, hey, if you do this, you know, with the Panama Canal and, and some of these other things, it's going to take, you know, 20 percent off your approval ratings. And, you know, it's going to cost you votes that you need in the next election. And Carter knew that. And he said, no, it's the right thing to do. And it needs to be done. And if I don't do it, it may not get done. That's very well, rare. It, I apologize for interrupting you there. Uh, so let's listen to another soundbite from your film in which uh, you uh, uh, make that exact point with the interview in the picture. So he wasn't politically naive. You can't be politically naive and do what Carter and his team did in 1976. They were a savvy group. They knew they were doing controversial things. They hoped, Carter hoped, the American people would recognize the success in carrying out some of those controversial tasks. They did it knowingly. I think that makes it a little more impressive and a little more remarkable, given, again, the typical behavior of American politicians. So, Patricia, uh, 
we're going to get to a break in a couple minutes. And, and after the break, I want to go into some of those very specific um, uh, proposals, policies that, the, that, that President Carter uh, took on that did, in fact, create problems for him, despite the visionary nature of what he was doing. But before we do that, let's you and I talk about what it's like to be a political journalist. We have both watched a lot of people run for public office. And we've watched smart people with great ideas um, uh, get out there on the campaign trail. But it would be a mistake to say that it's, a good, it's fine to be high-minded and not worry about how you communicate with the people who you want to elect you to empower you to be able to accomplish the things you want to do. And with all of the good things that Carter had in mind, he was not able to communicate his visions as effectively as he might have, despite the fact that he was working with very smart people like Hamilton Jordan, Jody Powell, and others uh, who could give him those lessons, yes? Uh, yes. Well, you know, I think the fundamental difference between Carter and any other politician I've ever um, worked with, covered, or even heard of was that most politicians make the fundamental choice. I know, I know that what I believe is right, but I need to live to fight another day. It seems in this film, and it's actually, it's literally the first time I've ever heard it articulated about a leader. Um, it was not about living to fight another day. It was not about getting through the next election. A lot of politicians try to get through the next election to fight another day, and they still can't do it because of choices they've made. It really did not seem to be on his radar, I'm going to do this, and, and I need to get elected. Um, it was, I'm going to do this, period. And when you have that sort of fundamental place that you're coming from, it's very hard to convince voters um, that they should come along with you. It, particularly, there there is a piece of the morality for Carter that he just believes he's right. And a lot of times in politics, that means that everybody else is wrong. Um, if people don't agree with you, they're wrong. If voters don't agree with you, they're wrong. Um, I don't think that it was, a, it certainly doesn't come off as a malicious uh, piece of his personality at all, but it's very hard to reach out to voters if you think you're right and they're wrong. And um, it just, it eventually it caught up with him. And, um, this film takes that piece out of it and it just examines what he did and what the long-term effects of those choices were. Yeah, which is a perfectly reasonable thing to do. Um, but, you know, Will, I, I, will, I have to say, as I watched your picture, I thought about the fact that there's an, an interesting way in which Jimmy Carter and Al Gore share something in common. Um, they both always think they're the smartest guy in the room. <laughs> and you know what? Usually they are, but that doesn't necessarily get you very far if you're trying to build coalitions. Yeah, it was it was interesting. You know, one of the quotes I believe that's in, in the film, or it could be on the cutting room floor. I'm not sure, but is that President Carter read some in like his reading um, comprehension level was insane. It was like ninety something percent, and he was reading like a thousand plus words a minute, and so two thousand uh, words a minute, and so it's like people like this usually. I mean, he would bring in legislation. He'd bring in books. Huge books. Um, Congress often had these meetings that, as they do with presidents, where they come and they talk about the budget. And they are, they, you know, there's a story where he's. They're all waiting in the room. He walks in. He brings in the budget, which is just massive. I'm indicating with my hands, but it's huge. And he sets it, slams it down the table, and it is just riddled with notes, just tabs the whole way. And he and they all they're just <laughs> wide-eyed, saying, "Oh my gosh, this guy has done his homework." And he has read it from start to finish, the entire budget, and has notes just throughout. And that's just who he was. The problem, though, and the film kind of gets into this, is when you do that and when you are so detailed or detail-oriented, um, it can be a drawback because it is a double-edged sword. Because he knew he wasn't a great delegator. It was something that Douglas Brinkley says in the film. And it's true, um, but, you know, it's kind of a catch-22 there. We saw it as a kind of a strength, but it can also cut you at the same time. Jim, one of the points you make in the picture when you in your section on the Camp David Accords is that one of the things that saved you you contend, um, or you have people in the it, that you've interviewed contend, is that Carter's 
understanding of the minutiae of those uh, concerns, the controversies, the, the deal that needed to be worked out, worked out to bring peace to Egypt and Israel were actually the things that saved the conversation. He was able to respond to every single um, uh, concern that uh, uh, Begin or Sadat raised and move forward and, and find a way to peace. Yeah, that's, 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 again, that's a theme throughout his presidency. Carter does not like to delegate. And, um, you know, I mean, he started off not even having a chief of staff. Um, and so Carter likes to do things himself. And to some people, that can rub them the wrong way. When, with Camp David, that really wins over these, these world leaders. Is Carter's depth of knowledge on the issue, his understanding of every little detail uh, at all of their concerns, they took that as, wow, this guy really cares and really understands. And of course, you know, Carter's riding his bicycle back and forth in Camp David doing, you know, shuttle diplomacy um, on, on his bike. And, and it works to <laughs> incredible effect. Yeah, they, they wouldn't meet. In, they, they decided very quickly that the two leaders were like poison to one another. And so they had to negotiate with each of them separately and bring the deals back and forth, the proposals back and forth. Um, let's do this. Let's get our first break of the show out of the way. When we come back, we'll talk about some of the very specific uh, things that are discussed in Carterland, the documentary that we're talking about today with the makers of that picture, Will and Jim Pattis. Um, one quick note before we do, um, Will mentioned that Jonathan Carter, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, Jonathan Alter, uh, has a new biography of Jimmy Carter. John was on the show a while back, and if you want to hear his conversation about Jimmy Carter, it's on our podcast, and it's also available on our website at uh, gpb.org PR, and that's a great conversation to listen to as well. We'll be right back with more. Today on Political Rewind, we're talking about the new documentary Carterland by Will and Jim Pattis. It premiered at the Atlanta Film Festival. And um, we're going to talk in a few minutes now about some of the very specific things the film highlights in terms of the successes that Carter had as president, or certainly the things he tried to accomplish that were way ahead of uh, his time. And Patricia Murphy, AJC reporter, political reporter and columnist, uh, joins us as well. Uh, Patricia, we, we've already mentioned, at least briefly, that uh, Carter's work on the environment, on, on climate, on preserving the planet, were some of, it was some of the most visionary things that he did, and in some cases did successfully in others, um, led him to uh, uh, lose favor with some of the American people. Yes, and it was so fascinating to see um, the the priorities that he was laying out are now so familiar because they are so current. And it really does make you think, what if the country had embraced the idea when he first proposed it? How different would things be? Um, and Governor Jay Inslee of Washington is in the film and says specifically, um, when Carter would talked about uh, reducing our dependence on foreign oil, um, it was the, really the first time we'd heard that frequently. And Inslee said, what if we had gotten off of foreign oil? What if we had, had done that? Think of all the wars we would not have had to fight. Think of not going into the Iraq war. Think of how different the Middle East could be um, were the United States not so dependent on the oil that comes out of there. Um, and uh, But again, we talked about how Carter's sales pitch to the American people was not always uh, getting people on board. Uh, there's a part in the film where he talks uh, to Americans, encouraging them to use less oil and says it will be a painful step and it's going to cost you more to use less. <laughs> and no surprise, people were very upset about that idea. So it was, a, it was a, just such a forward-looking, important goal but the politics around it were so difficult because it just hit people where they sit every day and look no further than people's panic in this tiny week about not being able to get the gas they wanted when they wanted it because of the pipeline shutdown. And you can just imagine if you had a president affirmatively choosing um, that path instead because it's the right thing to do. It, it didn't go over well. 
Uh, you have great clips, Jim, of the solar panels which President Carter had installed on the roof of the White House um, and showing them off to uh, reporters and cameras with great pride. Uh, the solar panels, which as soon as Ronald Reagan became president, were ripped down and sent to, you say, a museum, I think, Jim. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that was uh, that was something as we explored this film that kind of was a jaw drop moment for Will and I, you know, seeing Carter um, not only, you know, go up there, install solar panels on the roof of the White House, commit, you know, wants to commit all this federal money to research in solar, which was in its infancy at that time. Um, but then to go up to, for him to go up there and make the speech that he does talking about how, you know, solar, these solar panels you know, a generation from now, these solar panels will still be here producing cheap and efficient electricity. Um, and, and you know, this, he says, you know, this can be just a small part of, of you know, one of the greatest adventures, or it can be a museum piece. And it turns out that it's a museum piece. And it's literally, they're in the Smithsonian, that some of them are in other museums around the, the country. Um, but yeah, he goes up there and it's very prophetic. And Carter um, sees the, the that the future is, you know, we have to get away from fossil fuels. These are limited resources and they're polluting. And, and that's one of the things that Carter, I think, did, didn't get much credit for at the time and, and continues to not get a lot of credit for was Carter was looking at this from two perspectives. Yes, you know, we were in the midst of an energy crisis and we needed to get off of foreign oil. But Carter also recognized the environmental impacts of these things. Um, John Alter tells us that, you know, Carter was highlighting these notes from scientists talking about the impacts of climate change at the time. And, you know, he, of course, issues the Global 2000 report, um, has that come out that, that tells us that, you know, exactly what the Paris Climate Accords say today, that we need to reduce the, the global temperatures. So had, if Carter gets a second term, you know, this, this climate crisis, you know, would look very, very different today because he was very prepared to tackle that, which is just astounding, I think, for viewers to learn. So one of the things, Will, that, again, I think is worth noting here, um, Carter began laying out all of these uh, plans for what a, 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 the future could look like with alternative sources of energy. Um and they were bold ideas, but the problem he faced was that this came at a time when Americans were, for the first time, uh, standing in, they were sitting in their cars in long lines trying to get gasoline. People were fighting at gas stations. There was a story at one point somewhere about uh, a man pulling a gun on a gas station attendant oh, yeah. to try to get him to fill up his tank but he'd shown up on the day that he wasn't allowed to get gas. It was an odd day, not an even day. So there were, people were f- facing these practical problems, and in some ways, for the first time, Will, seeing that America was a country limited in its ability to get anything it wanted. And, and Carter answered that with these visionary ideas. Wonderful but maybe not addressing the immediate problem in the way that voters would have wanted. Yeah, exactly. I think that's one of his biggest downfalls as a politician is that he wasn't a cheerleader, which American presidents really have to be. He didn't say, hey, look at all the amazing things I'm doing, everybody. There's a quote in the film after the Panama Canal treaties where um, Phil Weiss, who's now vice president at the Carter Center, who was who worked under President Carter at the time, he says, you know, this was something that required two, a two-thirds majority vote in the Senate to get ratified, which imagining that today is like, uh, you know, oh, my gosh. And yet they celebrated for about five minutes in the West Wing, he says, and then they moved on to the next thing. And this wasn't something, you know, they didn't celebrate their victories in a way that connected that to the successes. I mean, he, his one-term presidency had more legislative successes than Bill Clinton, a two-term president, than Barack Obama, a two-term president, and so many others, pretty much anybody other than LBJ in the modern era. And yet no one knows it because he's not out there. He wasn't a PR person. And so that was kind of one of the downfalls for him. Despite being successful, you're not touting it. 
You know, Patricia, uh, one of the points that, that the, the, the picture makes, that the brothers make in the picture, though, is, yes, he had a great number of legislative successes, but he, his team never seemed to understand how to stage their legislative proposals in a way that took them one at a time, kind of slowly, allowed them to be focused. There's a couple of shots in the picture that I was fascinated by this huge board with every legislative proposal that Carter and his team had had, uh, given to Congress. And it's overwhelming. And, you know, there's a way in which even today there are people who think Joe Biden is throwing too many things at, at Congress at one time. And yet, we're only talking about three or four pretty bold initiatives compared to what Carter was doing, which was dozens of them. Well, and Carter was not proposing small ideas. If you look at the right. fine print on those boards, one of them is universal voter registration, which we are currently having a fight about in Congress this very minute. It has just never happened since then because it was so tricky to get through welfare reform, um, which didn't happen until Bill Clinton, and then even under very different circumstances. Hospital cost containment, again, something we've never been able to wrap our arms around as a country. And so Carter was proposing not just so many ideas, but so many massive ideas. And a lot of those required a lot of political capital. And this is when it really matters that he was an unknown to Washington. And he comes zooming in to D.C. with um, himself from Georgia, his team from Georgia, and very few relationships on the Hill and very few relationships to rely on. And so even though it was a Democratic Congress, Tip O'Neill, the Speaker of the House, was just complaining top to bottom, you're sending us too much stuff. You are not building the coalitions before you send them. Um, They didn't have that background and those relationships to really first understand the best way to prioritize um, these asks of Congress and then really how to um, continue to deliver on them. They did get some really big things through, but they were really hard. And the idea that the Panama Canal not only required two-thirds votes of the Senate, a number of those senators lost their seats as a result. And Jimmy Carter's yeah. approval pointing dropped uh, approval rating dropped 20 points. Yeah. I mean, that's basically the end of your legislative agenda. If you have lost your own personal approval rating, you can't go to Congress and ask for things. And so somebody with, with more experience, I think, on the Hill understands that and says it's not just about why I like being popular. It's what, I, what can I ask Congress to do when I'm popular. And when I'm not popular, it really changes the asks that you can bring up there. Yeah. And, and I think while we admire Carter and his team for their ambitious visions, um, we also have to say there was a certain arrogance. Uh, you know, Carter, again, the smartest guy in the room. Hamilton Jordan definitely felt he was the smartest guy in the room. By the way, I think Hamilton Jordan is another person who has been misunderstood greatly uh, because of the way he uh, was depicted during his White House years. Hamilton, in fact, was a wonderful, smart, visionary thinker himself, and it's a very sad thing that we lost him a number of years ago. But So, so um, I'm sorry for that uh, little diversion, Jim, but it is true that uh, because of their inability to work with Congress, a certain image of the Carter administration took hold, and Charles Bullock speaks about that in your picture, and we're going to play that sound right now. That plays into what then becomes kind of a theme of the White House under Carter, and that is these yahoos come up from Georgia, and they just don't know how to, how to perform here. You know, they don't understand the give and take that makes things operate here, that this is you know, one of the grease that makes the wheels and cogs mesh rather than you know, jamming and stopping. He didn't believe that the best way to deal with problems was to dole out pork in a piece of legislation so that you win over votes. That didn't sit well with him. And I think that was John Alter that we heard uh, after uh, UGA, a political science professor, um, Charles uh, Bullock. I'll tell you what, uh, let's take our final break of the show. Jim, before we do, um, we're already getting, Amelia Brock tells me, a lot of people on our social media platforms asking where can they see the picture? Where can they see Carter land now? Where will they be able to see it uh, in the weeks and months ahead? 
Um, yeah, it's a great question. We're getting a lot of uh, a lot of that chatter ourselves. Um, yeah, so we are working on distribution deals for Carterland right now. Um, we're 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 pretty excited about some of the things we've got in the works, and so we're we're hoping we'll be able to make an announcement sometime in the next month or two. But for folks to just stay tuned. All right, and we will certainly. Uh, you'll let us know, and we'll let our listeners know as you get distribution all. Uh, worked out. I can't imagine you're going to have any problem getting distribution on this picture. It's a, a beautifully done film. We're going to take our final break of the show and be right back with more in a moment. Patricia Murphy, AJC political reporter and columnist, political insider, is her uh, twice a week column in the AJC. And Will and Jim Pattis, the uh, Men who made, the brothers who made uh, the documentary Carterland are with us today. Patricia, I don't know about you, but when I watch that first scene in the picture, and there's Walter Mondale, I just, it, I grinned. It was so wonderful. I, I think I asked the guys before we started whether this was maybe Mondale's last interview, and, and the, the feeling is it probably was. Um, but uh, he became, as we know in the obituaries that were written uh, after he died recently, that one of the most important things that Carter did in terms of him was to elevate the position of vice president for the first time, making him a co-equal partner in government. That in and of itself was visionary, and it's something that Joe Biden seems to be trying to replicate with uh, uh, his vice president, uh, Kamala Harris, today. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, we talk about the Carter team did not have a lot of Washington experience. Well, Walter Mondale certainly did. And so he was a great compliment to Carter in that way. And I loved seeing Mondale in this um, film as well, because he looks so great. And he had so much yeah. to say. And this is not a man who was struggling to remember the details of uh, of his work in the White House. It was just he, he was it's just a a full picture of Mondale and his um, his participation in in the Carter administration, and so to me that was such an extra bonus of getting to see this was really seeing um, his recollections and also so many um, people whose last experience in in politics was a loss tend to be very bitter about their losses. Bitter, why didn't anybody give us credit? We were so much better than these guys, you know? And that's just <laughs> not the tone of the film, and it's certainly not the tone of Walter Mondale. He just had so much insight to offer. Um, and uh, it was, I was really, that, to me, that's a big bonus of this, of this um, yeah. film. Yeah, Will, and then Jim, what was it like to get to sit down with uh, Walter Mondale? You said you got a whole afternoon with him. Yeah, it was it was unbelievable. It was an experience of a lifetime, as were many of the interviews we were able to do in this film. And I mean, that was just crazy. I remember Jim and I, um, this was in Minneapolis, where the interview take place, took place where, it, where his home is. And we get into this building where he has an office. We go up the elevator and we're just, we set up everything. We're waiting there. And all of a sudden, you know, here in strolls the vice president with his one kind of aide. And it's interesting, the difference between, because people kind of forget sometimes that vice presidents don't have secret service after their presidency, uh, or after their vice presidency, after their term in office. And in strolls the former vice president of the United States, oh, how are you guys doing, you know? Jim and I had some horrendous <laughs> technical errors at the front end of that interview, and he's just there sitting patiently waiting. And then we end up spending, you know, uh, an hour and a half, maybe two with him. And then he says, you know, we, we, he still kind of wanted to keep going, and there was more questions that we would have loved to ask him. And so he says, you know what, let me do a lunch break. Let me come back after lunch. Let's keep this going. And so we end up getting to spend just Jim, myself, um, and the vice president an interview for an afternoon, and that was just unbelievable. Couldn't have been a nicer man. Um, Jim? Yeah, I, I, uh, I, you know, Walter Mondale's a real, real hero of mine personally as well. Uh, you know, he, he co-authored or he authored the legislation to create um, Voyagers National Park, which is where I met my wife. Um, and so I, I never would have met her <laughs> if not for Vice President Mondale, and I was sure to let him know that. Um, and he, uh, he was very thrilled about that, that I had married a, a Minnesota, Northern Minnesota woman. And, uh, but he, he could not have been nicer to Will and I, and he was just so funny. The guy has such a wonderful sense of humor and, and, um, to Patricia's remarks there, he, ha he has no, um, bitterness about him at all. 
and uh, you know about his loss to Reagan or Carter's you know loss in reelection. He he was just so jovial and and willing to talk about everything and uh, was was an absolute joy uh, to include in this film. Um. Well, I wanted to make sure we mentioned uh, the fact that you have a lot of really good stuff with Mondale. But let, let's turn back uh, with the time we have remaining to talking about the last uh, uh, section of the film and, and the final um, months of the, of the Carter presidency. I mean, these were very, very difficult times. And he had, um, uh, he had already gone through the, the, the um, energy crisis. Uh, he was losing approval over the Panama Canal Treaty. And then in 1979, uh, the hostages were taken at the uh, American embassy in uh, Tehran. And, and that really, you, you spend a good deal of time talking about it, Jim. Um, but your take on it is that, that Carter was in fact uh, courageous because rather than starting a war to get the hostages out, he tried to negotiate a settlement and peacefully uh, have them uh, freed. And there are people who would s significantly disagree with that uh, uh, take on it. But your picture makes it clear you really believe he acted in the best interest of not just the country, but the world. Yeah, absolutely. And we feel very strongly about that. Um, and we wanted to get that message across in the film. Um, you know, look at our history in the Middle East. Um, since Carter. Um, it doesn't look very good. Um, and we got involved for, for much lesser, you know, uh, things, uh, situations, in, in particular, you know, in the Iraq war, which lasted a very long time. But, but yeah, there were a lot of people um, at that time, and, and as you point out still today, who think, you know, yeah, we should have, we should have launched a full-scale war or an invasion or something, a dramatic, you know, military action to take back these hostages and, and, you know, sort of a Carter was, was all about peace. That was his, that was his thing. Um, and, you know, this is not somebody, I think that's part of the reason why Carter gets a bad rap is, you know, they think, Oh, he's a weak president because he didn't do this or didn't do that. Carter was, was a military man. You know, he's in the Navy, in the Naval Academy. Carter understood the real costs of warfare and he didn't want to do that. And, and we point out in our film, Jimmy Carter is the only president in the history of this country to never have a single soldier killed anywhere in the world in battle during his time in office. Never been done before or since him. That demonstrates, because there were many opportunities for that to happen during his presidency, and that truly demonstrates his commitment to peace. And and what a great thing to, to want to do. And, and I think it was... Um, I think as we look back on it in hindsight, we can see even more that it was the right thing. And, and yet, Patricia, uh, it really cost him even more in terms of his ability to win re-election. And the failed rescue mission uh, added to that. It, made, it, made, it added to this image that he just couldn't get things done. I happened to have been in the NPR Washington Bureau the night that the, that that mission failed, and I can tell you what an extraordinary night it was, and how we leapt in to cover uh, that event, and how negative the response to it was, Patricia. Yeah, there's a point, um, not related to the hostages, but there's a point in the film where Carter quotes both Sun Tzu with The Art of War and Dr. King and the need for peace. And um, I think you see so frequently with uh, veterans of the military, they understand not only the cost of war, but how quickly war can get out of hand and how it, it expands beyond your worst nightmare. And um, I think he was looking for the most uh, strategic and fast way to accomplish his objective without getting into a land war in the Middle East. Um, but it, a, a smaller footprint is often, is often more dangerous um, because there is not the backup plan. There are not they're not uh, kind of the, the troops to swoop in and overwhelm with power. And it was the choice he made strategically. Um, but it's one of the reasons we don't see that done as often is because it's, there's not as much of a guarantee of success in the end. Uh, Will, before we, we run out of time, uh, you saw Jimmy Carter briefly after you interviewed him, of course.
course, and asked him about his take on much of what was happening in current politics. But you also got a chance to talk with him briefly after he screened your documentary, Carterland. Tell us about that experience, how he responded. Yeah, that was another um, one of those unbelievable experiences for Jim and I, where we are just so um, he was able to screen the film in planes, and we were able to chat with him briefly on the phone afterwards. And uh, it was, un- I mean, he told us that he was overwhelmed with emotion, that it was a deeply gratifying experience. And um, we got to talk with former First Lady Rosalind, and she said that she was in tears from the film as well. So for us, that was just. I mean, what better, uh, I mean, if that was the single person who saw the film and that was it, Jim and I felt like that was a tremendous success um, just in and of itself. And another thing I would be remiss if not mentioning is that Jim and I, one of the coolest parts of the film was we got to work with our parents on it. They did the re- so much of the research at the Carter Center, and they're both educators from Georgia. And so that's kind of how another reason why Jim and I got into it is because um, our dad said maybe this would be a good project as well. He kind of helped us in it at the beginning. And so for them, for them to be there and there, for them to kind of understand and feel that as well was really cool. And Jim and I feel really fortunate they were able to help us. Jim, uh, what was it like to uh, get that response from Jimmy Carter for you? Yeah, um, you know, being on the phone with the President of the United States is, uh, as um, as I think Paul Volcker puts it in our film when he was appointed, uh, uh, <laughs> he said, you know, it's not something I do every day. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, that was, uh, that was a real, really incredible. And, you know, to have the subject of your film um, tell you, you know, what he thought of it and be very, you know, praiseworthy of the film, I mean, what what better compliment could you possibly get? I mean, we're we're talking about a living legend here, and so um, Will and I really felt like it was important for him to get get the recognition that he deserves in his lifetime. And I'm really glad that he was able to see the film, and and uh, that was a really special moment for us. Uh, by the way, there were so many other stories that people will get to see when they get to watch your picture. One of them is about Paul Volcker, appointed head of the Federal Reserve, because Carter wanted to stem the terribly out-of-control inflation. He was warned Volcker's going to raise interest rates to 20-plus percent. It'll hurt your presidency. And he said, that's fine. we got to get it under control. And later, you point out it was Ronald Reagan who got the credit when he went into the White House for turning the economy around when it was actually Carter's uh, decisions about Volcker that made that happen. We are completely out of time uh, for today's show. Will and Jim Pattis the uh, makers of the documentary Carterland. What a pleasure to talk with you, and thank you for giving us such new insights and helping us understand uh, President Jimmy Carter. And Patricia Murphy, you know how much I like working with you on the Friday show. I hope everybody has a great weekend. We'll be back, of course, again on Monday. In the meantime, take care, stay healthy, wear your mask above your nose, and if you haven't gotten a shot, go get one. See you next week.